0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Puru, for those of you who don't know me. And uh, I was pleased after Jyotish was doing his uh, anniversary summation of the various spiritual renewal weeks over the years that uh, I just remembered this year was my 40th anniversary of coming to Ananda. So... I appreciate the applause, it could just be I'm stubborn, (laughs) but it's been a a great 40 years. So my subject this morning, uh, fitting in with our overall topic of the science of meditation, is to discuss the science behind the science of meditation. As Jyotish and Devi both mentioned yesterday, uh, in this path in particular, we're lucky that uh, because it was uh, given to us in modern times, uh, Yogananda and Sri Yukteswar were able to use the vernacular of science as we know it today to describe some of the uh, deeper aspects of our teachings. And uh, as Jyotish also alluded, we have A chapter in the autobiography, The Law of Miracles, in which Yogananda explores how the theory of relativity and the understanding of how the cosmos or the universe is formed uh, fits extremely well with the cosmological teachings of this path. Well, since that time, uh, the Autobiography was finished in 1946. There's actually been quite a bit of new science that has come forward that is even more confirming of the underlying teachings that Yogananda presented to us. And I'm going to uh, take you through some of that this morning, hopefully not, uh, not losing you in the process. Uh, I find it fascinating. I've been uh, working on a book now for many years, and am getting close to being done which is called the physics of god and it is exactly as jyotish and devi were alluding it is a uh, description of how there is no conflict between science and religion we're really talking about the same one reality but coming to it from different disciplines and with different languages Uh, the one the language of science the other the language of religion but describing the same reality. So where Yogananda sort of left off with the uh, concepts of relativity, which in that day were pretty mind-blowing, since then, maybe uh, mid-century, mid-20th century, a key discovery was made in the like 20s or 30s and gradually came to be understood by mid-century That there's a lot more energy present in the universe than can be accounted for with the theory of relativity. Uh, If those of you who, who read these kind of books follow this, you know that there's a conflict between the mathematics of relativity and the mathematics of quantum theory. If you try to get the two of them to kind of merge around their borders, where they might Uh, connect with each other, the mathematics doesn't work. And one of the fundamental reasons the mathematics doesn't work is that according to quantum physics, there's a huge amount of energy just in the warp and woof of the universe. There's energy in space. Uh, And space is by far and away our our, uh, largest amount of real estate in the universe. (laughs) And yet it is filled with energy. They say that, Uh, oppositely charged virtual particles spring into being spontaneously and then annihilate each other on a steady basis in space. Uh, And this sort of seething activity of energy led some of the early uh, fathers of quantum physics to describe this underlying energy as quantum foam or perhaps a bit more poetically Heisenberg referred to it as Potentia, with a capital P. And that out of this substrate of energy uh, rises the energy that eventually condenses into matter. So this uh, difference between the two fundamental systems of physics has led to uh, decades of physicists trying to Combine the two, trying to find where you can reconcile the laws of relativity with the laws of quantum physics. And one of those potential solutions, and the one that has perhaps been given the most attention, is string theory, uh, also known as M-theory. And string theory posits that there are these infinitesimally small rings and strings of vibrating energy. They're as much smaller than the atom, then the atom is smaller than we are. So the atom is roughly a billion times smaller than us in our full size, and these rings and strings are a billion times smaller than that. They dovetail very neatly with how Yogananda described lifetrons. He said that Electrons are supported by lifetrons, and in turn, are the uh, lifetrons are supported by trons. Again, using the vernacular of science to describe this uh, deep cosmological understanding that comes from the East. String theory has evolved uh, completely mathematically, but they were uh, having to do that because None of the energy that is the core of string theory's work is detectable by our instruments. It's not the electromagnetic energy that we're familiar with. It is at a wavelength that is super high compared to the wavelength of even the highest level of electromagnetic energy, which is gamma radiation. Uh, it's it's literally a billion times smaller wavelength that they're positing, is this substrate of matter. So string theory has started to work with that, or not started, but has been working with that for some time. What does that? How can that um, apparent reality that quantum physics puts forward eventually mesh with matter? And what they came to from this starting point was that our physical universe is actually supported on a much, much vaster energy verse, which they rather disappointingly call the bulk. (laughs) (laughs) And the bulk is made of brains And those brains are not these kind of brains, but they're like membranes, you know, take off the mem and you're left with brain. These are like layers of uh, realms in this energy realm. And that the physical universe rests on or within this vastly larger energy verse, according to string theory and that the physical universe can't exist without that energy-verse supporting it. Starting to sound familiar? Basically, somewhere in the 20s or 30s, where uh, quantum physics went was in exploring the astral regions. They don't think of it that way. They don't talk about it that way but they're basically talking about an undetectable substrate of energy that supports the physical universe. And it's unmeasurable, it's undetectable, and they have found their way to their picture of this cosmos through mathematics. But their conclusions are so similar to our teachings, it's uncanny. Um, Let me read a passage from the AY that you're probably familiar with, but uh, it's, it's so perfect that I couldn't resist. This is Sri Yukteswar spe, or, uh, speaking to Yogananda in the, the uh, chapter from the AY, The Resurrection of Sri Yukteswar. And he says, The astral universe made of various subtle vibrations of light and color is hundreds of times larger than the material cosmos. The entire physical creation hangs like a little solid basket under the huge luminous balloon of the astral sphere. Just as many physical suns and stars roam in space, so there are also countless astral, solar, and stellar systems. There's also a reference uh, in that same chapter to the, um, the power of causal beings and that they are should they feel guided to, able to create physical universes. And they create those physical universes, should they choose to do so, out of that protean energy verse that has created our universe. And in fact, one of the many theories of physics these days is what's called the multiverse, that in fact there are um, zillions of other physical universes all Uh, springing from and resting upon this uh, substrate of energy. This energy, however, is not out there and we're here. This energy interpenetrates every atom of the physical universe. It's very hard to visualize. It's sort of not visualizable because the way in which we visualize is three-dimensional. So in terms of how we normally visualize, they're, you know, they're bumping up against each other, they're something is taking the place of something else. But, in fact, because of the uh, super high frequency, the super tiny wavelength of these rings and strings, they are warp and woof of all of creation. They're warp and woof of our bodies. They exist everywhere and uh, in anywhere that we can think of in the physical universe. Perhaps most interesting is that these tiny rings and strings are continuously creating the physical universe. We tend to think, because of the Big Bang Theory, that it burst into being and then it has its own enduring reality. But in fact, if the energy verse were to wink out of existence, so would the physical universe, that you can't have the one without the other. And string theory is matching this concept with the idea of the holographic universe. I'm sure all of you have bumped into this term. But basically what they discovered in many other ways is that there's not enough information contained in matter to account for its continued consistency. It's a strange idea, but there's nothing inherent to matter um, by itself that says it should form the way it does. And they're more and more coming to the conclusion that the information, the the fundamental laws that make our physical matter come together the way it does, actually reside in the astral universe, in this energy-verse, this bulk. And that the light energy, in combination with this information, which is basically what a hologram is. A hologram is the information. The holographic uh, projection is what comes from that information when light is shone through that hologram. And then you have a three-dimensional seeming reality from a basically a flat piece of film. So what string theorists are saying is that this high-frequency energy realm is two-dimensional, but the energy sort of shining through that template of the energy-verse creates a three-dimensional physical universe. Now, when we think of holograms, or holographic pro- uh, projections, <laughs> if we think about them at all, they're, <laughs> they're typically very sort of vague and fuzzy. You know, if any of you have been to... Uh, Disneyland or Disney World and you go on one of their rides, you're likely to see a hologram and it's very sort of spectral and ghost-like. But that's because its resolution is very, very low where the resolution of our universe is as tiny as the subatomic particles of every atom. So it's an ultra-high resolution hologram that is our universe. Now this is all fun and fascinating. (laughs) More personal is that we are holographic projections. What we think of as our body is in fact a continuously projected image from our personal information template which in our teachings is our astral body, that is constantly creating the image of our body in accordance with the, the uh, original template we started our life with and then whatever we added to that template for better or for worse. And that that is what looks back at you from the mirror in the morning is that continuously created holographic projection known as your body. Another uh, emerging area which combines these two um, uh, fundamental understanding of the universe, this holographic and the the string theory, is uh, called quantum biology. For many, many years, It was assumed by physicists, quantum physicists, that what we hear about as uh, quantum weirdness, or quantum effects, or the various sort of um, mysterious quantum uh, phenomenon cannot operate inside a physical body. That was considered that the human body was too warm, too moist, and that these kind of interactions couldn't take place. But there's been a very big sea change in the last decade or so that indicates that there are quantum effects taking place in our bodies. And they discovered it by way of the uh, way chlorophyll uh, acts in leaves. They had known for decades that uh, biologists they didn't have an explanation for why the transfer of energy, the capture of energy from sunlight to chemical energy, which is what happens in leaves, could never explain why it was so efficient. And it's been of significant interest because of all the development of solar batteries, solar cells, rather, uh, which in some ways mimic what leaves do. And they finally discovered that the chlorophyll molecules, which sort of capture the sunlight and then pass it on to a, what's called a a photo center, photo reaction center, where it's converted into chemical energy. They found that all of those chlorophyll molecules line up in a lattice while they're transferring the sun's energy. And not only do they align, they start to vibrate at the same frequency and vibrate in the same phase. So like rowers all rowing in tandem. So they're all in sync and they become like superconductors for this energy to go to the photocenter. And then they realize that the only way that they could be, these uh, chlorophyll molecules could be, in this sustained phase is if they were entangled with the quantum non-local energy world. And more and more what they're beginning to see is that this um, still unexplained to to the quantum physicists how it can happen, but nonetheless proven reality. This may be the a separation between animate and inanimate matter that our being alive, as opposed to this concrete I'm standing on, is a matter of our bodies, tissues in our bodies, cells in our bodies, going in and out of quantum entanglement. And that it's from that uh, entanglement that the body Runs itself intelligently, and doesn't just dissolve into a heap of molecules. <laughs> that we're uh, one estimate I read is that in every cell, there are fifty thousand biochemical interactions every second. And if you multiply that times estimates of how many cells are in an adult human body, which is 25 trillion, you end up with there being 25 quadrillion biochemical events taking place in your body every second. (laughs) It's hard to imagine how your nervous system can coordinate all that. Or your DNA can coordinate all that. Uh, And what they're coming to more and more of an understanding is that like the chlorophyll molecules that come into a sort of crystalline formation, which is known as liquid crystal, that your body is actually mostly liquid crystal. All the collagen that connects all of your tissues, all of the cell walls, Your DNA, they are all liquid crystals. And then they can come into greater or lesser phase depending on how uh, entangled they are with our astral body. And again, this is happening as a continuous process. We are being made and remade every instant from that template of the astral. Um, There is a fascinating field of uh, research that has been done, which came out of the um, studies of multiple personality disorder sufferers, people with, uh, you know, who had some sort of deeply traumatic experience in their youth, typically, and their personality sort of fragments into multiple personalities. Uh, it's not an enviable state to be in, but it's been well studied, and some interesting, very interesting things have come out of it. Uh, some personalities, for example, can speak foreign languages that other personalities cannot. Um, they have different abilities, uh, they have uh, different sort of characteristics, but less known is the fact that multiple personalities also all have, to some degree and another, unique physiological bodies. That when one personality comes in and another personality leaves, the body actually changes in the moments of that transition. And some of the transition is fairly dramatic. There are uh, stories of um, one young boy had a um, poison ivy outbreak, and he had you know big blisters, superating sores from a really nasty case of poison ivy. When his personality changed, it went away. <laughs> Sleeping pills given to one personality will not affect the next personality. These are the easy ones. The more amazing ones are Different personalities will have different eyesight. Some multi-personality sufferers will carry a dozen different glasses around with them, depending on who comes in. A a test was made by an ophthalmologist that uh, was able to measure 10 different personalities that emerged in an hour. And each of those 10 personalities had significantly different eye characteristics. Uh, you know, the acuity, whether you're 2020 or 2030 or whatever, but other things like the curvature of the eyeball, the pressure inside the eyeball. These are not things that an ordinary person moves through in a day or a month or a lifetime. These are different bodies, basically, with different eyeballs. Some of them have different colored irises. And it all happens in an instant. So my read of this from our teachings and from what I'm understanding in um, physics is that their template is different personality to personality. Personality. And with it comes the conviction of that individual, that personality, as to what they look like, what they can do, what they're able to do. And as soon as that template starts producing the new uh, body of that personality, all of these things manifest instantly. When we meditate, we're basically dipping into and attuning ourselves to our purer, more healthy, more energized, original template. And we, if we have the strength of mind or the depth of experience, can in fact have those kind of changes, which uh, pretty much everyone would say is miraculous. Uh, Yogananda said, if If miracles are miraculous, then everything is miraculous because it all demonstrates this same law that this, that we think of as this solid material world, is really this holographic projection from this information template that is our astral body or is the astral universe for this universe. The instant the template changes, the instant the physical world changes. It's not all dramatic. In the course of listening to me, your body changed. Ideas came into your mind. They flowed into your template. Your body changed. Your heart rate changed. Maybe your DNA was affected. Everything that we do. You know, in one sense, you could think of us as being fairly, fragile, mutable. Because what we wake up Feeling in the morning delivers us a different body than the way we woke up the day before, literally, because it's constantly, continuously created. So when you meditate, don't be fooled by this seemingly solid outer husk of a physical body. It's just a reflection of what you think and feel deeply. And when you meditate, you can change it in an instant.
1: Before we come thudding back down to earth in this <laughs> mundane world, I'd like to offer you a, I'd like to offer a little fundraising opportunity here. For any of you who'd like to invest in some real estate, I have some space for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Nayaswami Gandhyev, and our third speaker this morning will be Nayaswami Diksha. And yeah, I'm, I am going to come down to a little more mundane level than that. So hopefully your brains have kind of made shifted into the right phase to come to a different place. You know, Paramhansa Yogananda said very emphatically, and I quote: "The age of commandments has ended. This is the age of logic." And you think know, like logic is the essential instrument of science. So when he came to this country and emphasized. Science of yoga, scientific techniques. It wasn't just a PR move on his, on his part. He was, he was speaking a language that is not was not only the language of a geographical place, but of a, a place in time, of uh, the Dwapara Yuga, where we are now. And logic is not the, not the most advanced way of knowing, not the most advanced way of coming to some clu- conclusions but it is something that was less apparent in the early age, and it's not kind of emerging, just as the idea of energy is emerging now. So also, there's, there's more more to logic, and it's why science has become so predominant in our world, that it's, it matches with the age that we're in. But it doesn't necessarily match with every single person who is in that age. And in particular, the the thought of the science of yoga and scientific techniques doesn't necessarily mesh with so-called scientists who would like to say that yoga is a belief system and rather a woo-woo kind of belief system and that it's not the same as the knowing, the knowing that comes with science. I heard of one fairly well-known person, even in the yoga community, uh, recently, a physician who uh, made made a presentation on some kind of uh, yoga therapeutic thing he had done. Someone came up to him afterwards and said to him, "But my guru says something different." And his response was, "But this is science." In other words, this is irrefutable. Well, there's knowing and there is knowing. For example, how many of you know that this Earth is approximately 93 million miles away from the sun? (laughs) For all of those who didn't raise your hand, the Earth is approximately 93 million miles away (laughs) from the sun. But for those who, who did raise your hand, some of you are hesitating, wondering what kind of knowing I was talking about here. For those who did raise your hand, how many of you made the actual measurements and calculations? I don't see any hands. You had a scientist do it for you, and you believed him. Right? Most of what passes for science is simply something that got a, was done by a small number of people and was approved by a slightly larger number of people and is simply coming into a common belief that it's true. And that's not to say it's not true, not at all, but the, the mode of knowing that yoga is talking about when we talk about the science of yoga is very different. Yogananda was once um, talking with a university professor from Columbia University. And the professor asked, What is the difference between science and religion in the search for truth? Nyogananda's answer was, True religion is not theology. It is born of deep inner communion with God. True religion teaches us, for example, how to become the atom. Whereas theology at most only discusses the atom. Science studies the nature of the atom outwardly proving its existence by experimentation. Inner religion, however, goes beyond experimentation to actual experience. It helps one to cognize by direct experience his oneness with the atom at its vital center. That's different. That's a very, very different kind of knowing. So we can come into a place like this and we think, oh, I have a, I have the the teachings of yoga in my pocket. Might not have memorized them all, but I know them. And not really. We don't really even know them until we've experienced them. Which is why Yoganandaji would, would say, you must test the teachings. You must make them your own, because you don't know them until you have made them your own, until you've had that direct personal experience that is going to enable you to finally and truly say, I know. Now, there are a number of different teachings we can test in the yoga realm. There are different ways of testing. One way is the contrarian approach to testing, which is to Deliberately uh, go in the opposite direction of a teaching and see what happens. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure we've all done that uh, accidentally <laughs> and found the worst-case scenarios unfolding before our very eyes, but we can also do that deliberately. It's sort of like uh, going against the w- warning label on a product. For example, don't do this. I just saw some excellent warning labels recently. One of them was... Uh, do not eat this iPod. I don't know where that came from, but another one was do not hold the wrong end of this chainsaw. But my favorite was on a, a child's Superman costume, and it said, This product does not enable flight or super strength. Well, there are there are warning labels on yoga teaching sometimes too, and I'll raise my hand as someone who disobeyed the warning label uh, intentionally at one time. And this was this was the first time after I received Kriya Yoga initiation that uh, I had I was really ill and I had a pretty high fever. I was feeling pretty rotten, and yet I was very, very uh, was and am very, very adamant about Kriya Yoga twice a day, every day, no exceptions. And I thought, you know, my Kriyas are pretty pathetic. Yeah, there's nothing happening for me. Other people, okay, but not for me. I can kind of slip in here and and give it a try. So, uh, I mean, I was bored to tears, so I needed to do something. so I sat up. And decided I was going to do some Kriyas. One Kriya. I almost passed out. I was so happy. Something was happening in my Kriyas. I couldn't see it. I couldn't feel it. But it was happening. I just proved it. I'd also just proved that my body was really working hard because when my kriyas took away the energy that it was using to fight the illness, things really, really deteriorated instantly. So it was a good thing, but I've done it for you. You don't have to do it. Uh, it, if, If it can happen with my kriyas, it can certainly happen with your kriyas. And so the contrarian approach is one way to test the teachings. Another way to test it is through simply direct testing of some, some statement in the teachings that you're trying to sort of come to grips with. And I'd like to test that with you this morning. Very simple thing, just the concept of relaxation, okay? No problem, uh, the only problem is that you're going to have to get up to do this. So everybody stand, please. All of you out on the internet, stand, please. <laughs> So, we are going to do the first phase of a very simple yoga posture. We are going to do the first phase of the chair pose, Utkatasana. And we're going to hold it for a little while, and I'm going to talk to you. So, with the palms forward, let's inhale up on the balls of the feet, hold the breath, and settle into a nice crouching position. A little deeper for a lot of you, and let the breath resume. Let's breathe naturally. and. Keep holding it for a while. <laughs> keep it up. Keep breathing. Don't hold your breath. Oh, we can go a little deeper, I think, a lot of you guys. Come on, let's, down, let's get those legs working a little bit. And you know that, that hard chair that you were sitting on a moment ago? It's sounding pretty good right now. Okay, let's come back and relax. Just relax whatever way feels comfortable to you. Good for you all. (laughs) Not bad. What happens when you usually relax? It's sort of... (sighs) I see it in your posture. Swami Kriyananda made an interesting statement. He said meditation is the process of upward relaxation into superconsciousness upward relaxation and people think that that's a contradiction in terms right upward relaxation relax onto the couch relax into bed relax into the chair Well, let's do this again with a concentration on a component of your being that is really going to be moving upward, but we only, might only feel this when we come out of the position. So let's let's do it. Palms forward. Inhale up on in the balls of the feet. Hold the breath. Come down to the half crouch, and then let the breath resume. A little deeper. New York City. Come on. <laughs> Just breathe. We'll go until the legs are really feeling joy. <laughs> okay, in a moment we're going to come out. And when, when you come out, I want, I want you to focus on the upward sensation that happens as soon as you come out. The upward sensations in your legs percolating up into the torso and perhaps even higher. Okay, let's inhale up and relax the standing position. Close your eyes. And tune into that rising sensation in the legs that continues up into your torso, perhaps higher, is the relaxation sensation. That's all that's happening is energy that was employed in keeping you in that rather uncomfortable position has been released and it's going back home. It's going back to where where it lives, more in your spine and perhaps rising up the spine as well. Now sit down, if you would, and with the eyes closed, try to feel that same sensation in your brain, right inside your skull. Try to feel that sensation of upward relaxation. This is not rocket science. This is not difficult. This is a lot easier than what Puru was talking about. All you have to do is feel it, and notice how that sensation naturally lifts your eyes, lifts your gaze Above the horizontal, you don't have to work to lift your gaze. It just happens if you feel that sense of upward relaxation. Now, there's certainly more to relaxing upward into superconsciousness, but this is a beginning. And we can test the teachings. We can give them a test drive to see just how this process unfolds inside of us. You can open the eyes again. So there Many many ways to test the teachings. Here's here's another way. Anybody here ever kind of felt that their meditation practice is in the doldrums? <laughs> yeah, and hopefully nobody is feeling that right now, but way in past history. Well there's an ex- there's more than one explanation for that, but there's here's one possible explanation for that that I suspect Uh, has infected many of us. And the term comes from the field of exercise science. And it's called the repeated bout effect. Repeated bout, B-O-U-T, effect, like the repeated encounter effect. And what it, what it talks about is that anything you do, uh, well, since it's from exercise science, it's talking about anything you do with your body, your body will adapt to, and it will become pretty undramatic real soon. So, for example, if you are a sedentary person and you suddenly start to walk three miles a day, I'm going to graph the benefits for you here with my finger in the air. And what happens is very soon the benefits start to take off and you get increased muscle tone, you get uh, increased health of the cardiovascular system, you get more vitality, you sleep better. Wonderful things happen. But if you keep walking... Day after day, three miles, same pace. Here's the graph of your benefits. They started out really good, and they flatten out. And after a while, you don't even notice benefits anymore. And the reason that you're not noticing benefits anymore is that there aren't benefits anymore. (laughs) You still get the benefits you started out with, but you don't get any more benefits because your body has adapted. Your body has adapted. And... So the only way you're going to get more benefits is either walk farther or walk faster. What it amounts to is putting more energy into what you're doing. And sadly, the same is true of meditation. that <laughs> we can get into that same graph. We start we go from half an hour a day meditation up to an hour medi- day of meditation, and the, the graph takes off, and we are feeling the effects of meditation further into our day, we're better able to stay centered, better able not to react to the things that happen to us. The graph goes up very nicely. But if we stay at an hour with the same level of intensity, it flattens out and after a while, you don't notice any additional benefits for the simple reason that you're not getting any additional benefits. Because what you're trying to do is rise to a higher level of consciousness And one inconvenient fact of higher levels of consciousness is that they're associated with higher levels of energy needed to get to those higher levels of consciousness. There's a popular book out in the world of career building and business. It's called, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. And it's a great title because it applies to so many things, not just careers, not just exercise, but meditation. What got us to this point in our practice is not going to get us to the next level we'd like to go to. We need to bring something more into the equation and to think of how are we going to bring something more into the equation? How are we going to make that jump to where we want to go? Well, the... Of A few years ago, the English cycling team came up with a clue on this. The coach decided that he would try to help their cycling team improve in as many ways as possible, just 1% in each way. So not only the aerodynamics of cycle and rider and the weight, but, and the training regime, but nutrition, which massage jails worked the best, which pillows led to the best sleep, and then once they found that out, they took the pillows on the road with them. Wherever they went, the idea was to win the Tour de France, which in England had never done, and they gave themselves five years to do that, and they won it in three, and continued to dominate the cycling world thereafter. Until the idea got around a little bit that maybe there's other things besides bicycles and training regimes. But we can do this in our in our meditation practice as well. It's not difficult. Look for the little 1% improvements that we can make or maybe more than that. You know, Diksha and I just finished Ananda's first ever 100% online meditation teacher training program which way surpassed my expectations, and I expected a lot uh, from the program. But one of the things I was reminded of, as I've been reminded of periodically and just talking about meditation uh, with people over the years, is that there is a significant difference between awareness of the breath and concentration on the breath. You can be here listening to me watching whatever there is to watch out there as you listen to me, being aware of your breath, mentally repeating Hong Sa. Are you practicing Hong Sa? No, you're not. Because Hong Sa requires concentration on the breath, not awareness of the breath. And what's concentration? It's removing your mind from all objects of distraction and putting it on a single object of attention. And that is Object is the breath. As long as we're aware of other things, we're hopefully moving toward Hong Sa practice, but we're not there yet. So to make a 1% improvement of that, maybe we're not all the way to we're just so engaged with the breath that we think we are the breath, which is a great place to go with Hong Sa practice, but if you're not there yet, at least to move in that direction or to improve your breathing I mean, how many of us work on our breathing, making it freer, smoother, more natural? We had a, last spring we had a a weekend workshop here at Pranayama Clinic for Kriyabans. And one of the things we did during that workshop was to work on freeing up the breath, freeing up just the physical breath. And the results were not 1% improvements in anything. They were like 5, 10, huge improvements because people not only were able to breathe more easily, They were able to feel the flow of the astral breath more easily through a greater length of their spine instead of just isolated parts of the spine. We're going to have this workshop again next winter, by the way, for any meditators. But the little improvements we can make that can add up to big improvements, relaxation. How much are you putting, bring relaxation into your practice, especially upward relaxation? How much are you bringing devotion into your practice? Just make these little bitty improvements that take us up the ladder so that we can meditate more deeply and experience these higher higher levels of consciousness. It's just a very simple, mundane, down-to-earth, scientific approach to raising our consciousness just one step after the other. You know, one of the things that that has plagued me all many, many years was uh, Yogananda's admonition, make every meditation deeper than the last. And when I would see that, I would see this sort of infinite progression of meditations out before me, everyone deeper than the last, everyone more exhausting than the last, everyone more, more impossible than the last. And I would get, you know, a little bit discouraged thinking about that. So I thought, how can I bring this into something that's more real for me? Uh, and I came across a quotation. Um, this is by a physician who is a somewhat popular writer these days. He's a surgeon. He writes about medical topics. An interesting thought. He said, regardless of what one ultimately does in medicine, or outside of medicine for that matter, one should be a scientist in this world. In the simplest terms, this means one should count something. It doesn't really matter what you count. You don't need a research grant. And I would add, you don't need a control group. You don't need a double-blind study. The only requirement is that what you count should be interesting to you. What a nice comment. The only requirement is that what you count should be interesting to you. And I thought, how can I explore this every meditation deeper than the last idea in a way that's interesting. And I thought, well, I can't guarantee that every meditation's deeper than the last. And to be honest, I really can't guarantee that what I put into every meditation is going to be deeper than what I put into the last meditation. But let's face it, sometimes we're exhausted. Sometimes we're frazzled. Sometimes we're emotionally upset, and you just can't do what you'd like to do. But I thought, here's something I can do and I can count, and it's kind of interesting. I'm gonna count how many meditations in a row I can do where at the end of the meditation I can honestly say, I gave it my best. That's all. I gave it my best. I'm not gonna tell you how long my string has gotten, but it's uh, not as long as I imagined it would be, but getting longer. Getting longer, but it's just this little process of of trying to apply this logic, if it's in the air in this age in Dwapara Yuga, of scientific inquiry, of testing and testing the teachings. Where can we Where can we go with whatever resources we have? If we haven't developed that magnificent intuition that the that the masters have, we're working on it. But in the meanwhile, here's the other tools that we have so that we can begin to burrow out of this of belief which belief is a great thing it's it motivates us it it uh, shows us directions to move in but it's not the same of no, as knowing and to to burrow out of that of that mess into the the true knowing and to get to that place where dr lewis uh, yogananda's first disciple in the west well, I ask Yogananda, well, about this samadhi you talk about. Um, what if I, you know, I've been thinking about it. I've been memorizing your poem, samadhi, and repeating it and all this. And all these years, it's become a very sort of real idea to me. But what if I get there, or I think I'm there, and all it is is my imagination. All it is is my so subconscious programming that I would be experiencing this state and not really experiencing this samadhi state. And Yogananda's answer was, when you get there, you'll know, and you'll know that you know. And that's all we're trying to do is to know that we know through our own direct experience, not through belief, not through other people telling us, but by just testing the teachings and finding our own way to the truth.
2: Everyone, before we continue, let's just take a few moments. You can stand up if you like and stretch or do the chair pose. <laughs> Well, after hearing these two inspiring talks, the cosmic and the individual science of meditation, I will be talking about devotion to balance mind and heart. I, uh, devotion is really essential for successful meditation and for achieving higher states of consciousness. In meditation, it's not enough to quiet the mind. We also need to calm the agitations of the heart. When the heart is calm, when the energy is directed upward to the spiritual eye, between the eyebrows, then the mind becomes still. Because there are no agitated feelings, To disturb it. Devotion is not just a nice feeling, a warm, kind sentiment. Devotion is a hunger for truth, it's a deep yearning to know God. It's a deep commitment and self offering of all one's energies to God. Devotion originates in the heart. But also delusion originates in the heart. What keeps us bound to delusion are desires, likes and dislikes, attachments. And so the way out from delusion begins in the heart by starting to direct the energy from the heart up to the spiritual eye. Last month, We had um, meditation teacher training here at the Expanding Light. One woman, her name is Ivy, was taking the training. Ivy lives close to Ananda, so every day she was commuting from home. One morning, as she was driving to Ananda, she saw a deer starting to cross the road, So, so she slowed down her truck. And after the deer came two little fawns. They were just a few days old. When they saw Ivy, Ivy's truck, they stopped in the middle of the road. They stretched their arms and laid flat on their belly. She never saw something like that. So Ivy pulled to the side, and then she got out of her truck, went up to the Fawns and start clapping her hands, trying to coax them to move away from the road. But the fawns wouldn't move. And then another car came. So Ivy stood in the middle of the road, stretched her arms, trying to block the road. So the car pulled to the side. A woman came out. Ivy explained the situation. And the woman said, we have to pick them up and move them. As Ivy picked up the little fawn, she said his body was so tense, his heart was beating so fast, and his eyes were squeezed shut. So after she crossed the road, she stood still, held the fawn close to her heart, and bathed him like Divine Mother with love. And the fawn responded, he relaxed. He opens his eyes. He looked up at her. They connected. And then she put him down. And so did the other woman. And then the fawns joined the mother that was waiting behind a tree. All living beings respond to the love of Divine Mother. Human beings, animals, plants, We all long for that pure, unconditional love. As human beings, we have the potential to love like Divine Mother. But there are veils that are preventing us from expressing it. Yogananda's guru Sri Yukteswar wrote in his book, The Holy Science, that we cannot take one step on the spiritual path until we uncover the natural love of the heart. And he wrote that the natural love of the heart can be covered by eight kinds of veils. He called them the eight menaces of the heart. And they are fear and hatred, shame, grief, condemnation, race prejudice, pride of pedigree, and a narrow sense of respectability. Each one of these veils contracts the heart and keep us bound to the small self, to delusion. But when we are able to remove these veils, we are able to experience what Sriracha called The magnanimity of the heart, the ability to feel great love for people, for life, for God. Yogananda achieved that state. He was an incarnation of divine love. And he came to show us how we can attain that state. The meditation techniques that he brought. Help us to withdraw from outwardness, to lift our energy up to the brain, and to open the door for a divine experience. But it is only through the openness and the receptivity of the heart that we can experience the divine Yogananda said, "Nobody." Thank you. That's it. Thank you. Yogananda said, "No one, nobody, can give you the desire for God. Not even science. You must cultivate that desire yourself." And so, how do we cultivate? The desire for God. Once, when Swami Kriyananda was giving a talk, a man said to him, I don't believe in God. And Swami asked him, Tell me about the God that you don't believe in. And the man went to describe what he thought God was judgmental and cruel and controlling. And on and on he went. After hearing this, Swami said, I'm not surprised that you don't believe in God. I don't believe in that God either. I believe in God of love, in God of joy. And so to cultivate the desire for God, we need to think of God in a way that helps us to open our hearts to him. To think of God in that aspect that help us to feel loved, not judged. That help us to feel relaxed, not fearful. Because it is only in deep inner relaxation that we can make spiritual progress. Swami uh, Gande mentioned that we just finished four months of meditation teacher training, and 24 students completed the training. And during the course, the students had to meditate every day. But they have also different assignments. One of them was to bring meditation into daily life. Every week they had to write a journal, writing about their experiences And every week, I read their journals. And it was so inspiring to see how the students practiced. They were so hungry. They practiced the mental chanting and affirmations and visualization and all the tools we gave them to feel uplifted and to respond in positive ways to the daily challenges. They also had to take a day of seclusion to be in the presence of God, and some of them never done it before, and it helped them to connect with their soul and to remember what is real and what is important in life. One student, a woman, she had a beautiful experience, and she Gave me the permission to share it. She's a yoga teacher. But one of her side jobs is to feed horses. And every day, she has to be at the ranch at 5.30 in the morning. And she had to feed about 34 horses. And it takes her about three hours to do it. And it can be challenging. Every horse has their own personality, their own temperament, just like human beings. And since she started the training, she gets up at four in the morning. She does her meditation practice. And then she drives to the ranch with her dog. Before she starts feeding the horses, she pauses. She touches the point between the eyebrows to remind her of God. She takes three Deep conscious breaths. And then she would practice Hong So as she walks around feeding the horses. When she's done fe- uh, feeding the horses, then sometimes if she has time, she would do walking meditation with Divine Mother. And then she would sit to meditate around the horses. What she found, her days are much more productive She's calmer, she's happier, and she sleeps better. But the most amazing thing that she noticed was that the horses were more amiable. They responded to her energy and to her stillness. One day, as she was going around feeding the horses, she came to a horse that she was not familiar with. It was a new horse in the ranch, he was agitated, his legs were caught up in a fence and was stuck there. As she approached him slowly, he tensed up. So she paused, and she heard the Hong So in her breath. As she listened to the Hong So, she experienced a divine rain of energy pouring all over her, flooding her being and at that moment her dog who was usually bouncing around paused and he lay down at her feet the horse relaxed too and he blew up all his air and stood still as she stepped forward she he didn't object her she was able to pull his legs off the fence He cooperated with her. And then he stood calmly and just looked at her. And she said, gradually the rain of divine energy gently dissolved. The horse blew out his air again, and then he walked to where his food was. So it was a very sacred experience. She said, I experienced oneness with nature, with the horse, with my dog. Swami said, God will come to you when the magnetism of your devotion is strong enough to draw Him through the filter of your desires and your expectations. We can build that magnetism By inviting God into everything we do. Not being formal with God. By sharing everything with God. Swami gave a very good tip for meditation. He said in meditation don't think how the divine can serve my desires. Instead think how can I offer myself more perfectly to God. Some years ago, there was a very inspiring satsang in the community with Devi and Jyotish. It was about building communities. I took notes at that meeting, and I'd like to read to you how Jyotish began this meeting. This was in September of 2002. The true test of the devotee will be at the end of life when the only question that will be asked will be, how much did you love me? How much did you offer back to me the source of everything that you have? One of these lifetimes, our answer is going to be, I loved you with everything I had, and I gave you everything that I thought I possessed. It was all yours, and I did not want any of it, and I never want any of it again. I want to remain in the consciousness That it was always yours, is always yours, and always shall be. And I am nothing but an expression of Thee alone. This is a beautiful expression of true devotion. when we attune ourselves with Yogananda when we concentrate on him we draw his divine vibrations that help us to dissolve that sense of separateness and help us to feel not only close to God but to feel that we are a part of Him. About 15 years ago, a woman came to the Expanding Light to take the yoga teacher training. She didn't know much about Ananda. She came because a friend recommended the program to her. Throughout her life, She never felt comfortable being on this planet. She was very aware of her imperfections and how she hurt other people. And it caused her great sufferings. During her life, she, she was diagnosed with clinical depression. It came in cycles. And every time the, the depression hit, she had to take prescribes, prescribed medications. And so she started to practice yoga and meditation, hoping that it will help her. At one time, after she was laid off work because of depression, she decided to take the yoga teacher training. Soon after she came to Ananda, she bought Yogananda's book, Scientific Healing Affirmations. There is a picture of Yogananda on the cover. She put the book on her nightstand, and she saw it morning and evening, and she was very drawn to that picture. After two weeks into the program, she decided that she needed to get a real photo of Yogananda. And so one afternoon, she walked to the Kursar Hermitage Boutique. On the way, she got lost. And then she met two people. She didn't know who they were. One of them was Swami Kriyananda. And Swami directed her to the Hermitage. She was able to get there. She bought the photo and start walking back to the expanding light. Right outside the gates of the Cursor Hermitage, she saw Swami again. This time Swami talked with her. And then he asked her, did you ever meditate in the Cursor Hermitage chapel? And she said, no. No. He said to her, ''I think you should.'' She thanked him, but sat walking back to the expanding light. And Swami said, ''I really think you should meditate there now.'' <laughs> so to be polite, she turned around, went back to the hermitage. She entered the chapel. There was no one there. She sat down to meditate. And after 10 minutes, she felt a finger touching her heart from the inside, and she knew it was Yogananda. Then she was lifted into the light and was flooded with the knowledge that it's okay for her to be on this planet. It didn't come to her in words. It came as a feeling, a feeling that conveyed to her that she doesn't need to justify her existence, that she can be who she is. At that moment, a dark cloud lifted off her heart and the cycles of heavy depression were gone, never to come back. Later, she became a disciple of Yogananda. Recently, I received a card from her. She's happy she meditates every day. She's very grateful for Swami's advice and for Master's healing that happened 15 years ago. Yogananda's love is not limited. It's available to anyone who is receptive to it. Yogananda said, to those who think me near, I will be near. And I'd like to end by reading one of Yogananda's poems. A poem that I feel conveys his love and his care for his devotees and for anyone who is receptive to it. This poem is from Yogananda's book, Songs of the Soul, and the poem is called, When I Take the Vow of Silence. If like you like, you can close your eyes and just take it into your heart. When I take the vow of silence to remain in locked with my beloved in the arms of his everywhereness. I shall be busy listening to a symphony of creation's bliss songs and beholding hidden wondrous visions. Yet I shall not be oblivious of you all. I shall mutely watch you, walking over me in the fresh grass blades and seeing me in my living leafy presences. I shall behold you with mothering tenderness through every crimson blossom that wears a blush of love to bring you delight. I shall caress you with the enfolding breeze to relieve your worries and fears, and enwrap you in sun warmth, when the chill of delusive loneliness strays into your heart. When you gaze at the ocean, you will be looking right at me, united with my beloved on the altar of the horizon, sky canopied with silver rays over the azure-wavy, hazy sanctuary. I shall not speak except through your reason nor scold except through your conscience. I'll persuade only through your love and your heart's longing to seek the Beloved only. I shall tempt you, but with a sole temptation, to enjoy the Beloved's love alone. Forget me if you will but not my beloved. Remembering him, you cannot forget me. Om, peace, amen. like to end our morning together by sending Yogananda's vibrations of love to this whole world. So please stand up. Let's take a moment. Close your eyes and feel your personal connection with this great master. Now let's rub our hands together and share three ohms, three vibrations of love with the whole world. Ooh.